The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. This is what the Holy Spirit wrote to the pen of this author, whoever it was. Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves and in thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, What have you done? Saul answered, When I saw that the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the the Philistines were gathering in Michmash, I thought, The Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've been foolish. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeon, Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him. About 600 men. Saul and his son Jonathan and the troops that were with them were staying in Gibeah of, of Geba of Benjamin and the Philistines were camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistines in three divisions. One division headed toward the, uh, the Ophrah road leading to the land of Shual. The next division headed toward Beth Haran road. And the last division headed down to the border road that looks out over the Zeboim Valley toward the wilderness. No blacksmith could be found in all of Israel because the Philistines had said otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all the Israelites went back to the, went to the Philistines to sharpen their plows, mattocks, axes, and sickles. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for plows and mattocks and one-third a shekel for pitchforks and axes and for putting a point on a cattle prod. So on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. 
drinking a raw egg is perhaps uh, not the most flavorful or safe attempt uh, to, to get shredded. Yet when, when bodybuilding became a popular thing, cracking one, two, three eggs, maybe more, and totally slamming them was a quick way to, uh, to get more protein in your diet and as well as increase the fatty acids that, uh, that help with metabolism. When combined with a, a weightlifting uh, uh, course, it can help you get ripped quicker. There are, however, better alternatives to drinking raw eggs. I mean, protein powder for one, because you can put protein powder in almost anything. You, can, uh, you, you don't have the risk of, of salmonella poisoning. Uh, you can put it in smoothies and oatmeal and, and yogurt and even mashed potatoes I learned this week. And, and you can even put it in pancakes. You can buy pancakes that are fortified with protein even today. You can even put it in coffee. I mean, it's like things just doesn't get better than this. Uh, but getting strong today doesn't have to taste as disgusting as it did uh, many, many years ago. Well, not many years ago. We're talking what? I don't know. Not that long. Maybe some people still drink raw eggs. I don't know. But protein powder is better for you at this point. Not many of us aspire to be shredded like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But most of us do value physical strength. Some of us have exercise routines uh, in order to feel good, and maybe prevent atrophy. Uh, some of you high schoolers may hit the, the weight room uh, a few times a week in order to uh, up your game or perhaps even pre uh, prevent an, an injury. Um, for some of you, maybe you realize that your bones aren't as strong as, as uh, they used to be, and so you take a calcium supplement every day to strengthen those bones. I think, of, uh, I think of Julie's grandma who turned 104 this past week that she still goes down to the exercise program at her building and, and, and does the motions and the movements in order to stay uh, strong for what she can at, at her age. You know, being strong is so ingrained in us as people that it's totally natural for a three-year-old boy just to strip his shirt off, flex his muscles and say, look at my muscles. It's totally natural for them to, to do something like that. Um, as parents, we give our children milk because milk does a what? Does the body good, right? Yeah. So, but as much as strength is a core virtue in our world, weakness is looked upon very unfavorably. Historically, weak nations have been bait for, for stronger uh, and more dominant ones. In our world, we believe that it's only the strong that survive, that the early bird gets the worm. In Christianity, however, we view the world in a completely different way. In Christianity, physical strength is of little importance. Mental strength isn't necessarily championed, and, and even personal moral strength is not looked at as a prerequisite. Rather, Christianity can only be understood in terms of our weakness, our inability to be enough, to do enough, to be clever enough, or even to be strong enough. It can only be operative when we completely abandon the delusion that our sin doesn't matter, that our goodness overshadows those things, and at the end of the day, we are all that we need. Christianity is the only system of a worldview that looks at life realistically, 
It's the only system that looks into the difficulties of life uh, and also uh, looks at our very shallow limits, but also provides a real solution, looking to the strength of another, namely Jesus Christ. So in our time together today, uh, we are going to continue in our series in 1 Samuel, and we're going to point to something completely countercultural, that strength in the kingdom of God uh, is not of any benefit, but rather weakness is our asset and our strength is a liability. By looking to Jesus uh, our, uh, str- as our strength and guide, we find hope and we find freedom from the bondage of looking to the dry cistern of our own self-reliance. So there's two things that, uh, that I have for you today, and I've worded them a little bit differently than is on your sheet there. Uh, the first thing is that we need to embrace our weakness. We need to embrace our, our weakness. In 1 Samuel 13, the, the Israelites were on somewhat of a winning streak. They had a new crowned king who was just coming off his very first victory in battle. He defended the people of Jabesh Gilead against Nahash the, the Ammonite who had threatened to, to uh, pop all their right eyes out and leave them just with one eye. His approval rating was, was going up here at the end of chapter 11. They, they come to Gilgal and they basically throw a victory party. Chapter 12, the prophet Samuel gives his resignation speech as their, as their leader. And uh, Also, he brings them back to reality. That this king who just provided victory for you is only in place because you sinfully rejected the Lord and wanted a human as your king instead. So be warned, he says, you're going to get what you ask for. And the people recognize their sin. They realize that there's there's no do-overs here. They're stuck with this king. But yet they repent anyway and they return to the Lord, uh, seemingly so. And the chapter ends on this solemn choice that they have a, uh, a choice before them to either worship God faithfully and prosper or be swept away. And their, their choice is figured out pretty quickly in chapter 13. Uh, For Saul, he thinks that the best thing that he can do is ride out his approval rating. And he wants to go with the momentum and muster up uh, an army uh, to which he can flex his muscles. You know, just like the other nations too. His choice was not to faithfully follow the Lord, although he's going to use that as a mask, as we'll see throughout here. But rather, he wants to lean on his own understanding and his own power. Look at verse 2. We see the first instance of his foolishness. He chose 3,000 men for him from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And he sent the rest of the troops away to his own tent. So Saul's foolishness here is not in building a military. Nations need a military. Military is good to protect and defend uh, the land. And so putting together an infantry is not sinful here. 
Saul's foolishness is found in his confidence. If you remember back in chapter 11, when Nahash the Ammonite came and threatened the people of Jabesh Gilead, he rounded up 330,000 troops to go against him, uh, to go against Nahash. Yet coming off of this adrenaline rush and this victory of battle, notice that Saul thinks that 330,000 might be a bit excessive for an army. So he cuts his military down to 3,000. 1,000 of them he gives to his son Jonathan. The other 327,000 get to go home. So in order to flex his muscles and send a message to the surrounding nations that there's a new dog in town, uh, in verse 3, Jonathan takes his 1,000 troops and he does a surprise attack on this garrison of the Philistines, which is located in Psalm's hometown of Gibeah. Uh, the Philistines were, were the constant thorn in the side of the Israelites at this time. Uh, in fact, they actually occupied and controlled much of Israel politically uh, at this point. And, and uh, uh, Jonathan, he is victorious, and it pleases Saul, and he uses this to, to up his ratings in, his, uh, in, in, in the uh, favorable polls. Look at verse 3. Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Hey, everybody, check this out. Jonathan just went and attacked the Philistines, this little, uh, this little uh, building that, that guards a certain area, maybe 20, 30 soldiers. We just took them out. And when they do hear this, when the Israelites hear it, the opposite effect happens. They become terrified. Look in verse 4. All Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison. And Israel is now repulsive or a stench to the Philistines. Anyone who has played in competitive sports understands what is happening here. If you walk onto the field or if you walk onto the court or whatever it is, and even if you have just a little bit of confidence that you're going to do well and you look on the, the opposing team and you notice, holy cow, these people are big. They're taller than us. They're, they're stronger than us. They have, they have better equipment than us. This, this, this can't be good. And you walk out there uh, and you see that they have more people. They're going to have fresher subs than, than we are. We're going to get exhausted. And you realize that this game is probably over even before it started just because they're so much bigger. The people of Israel here were well aware of the Philistines' might. They knew that they had a much bigger, much stronger army with state-of-the-art weapons. And we, as we saw later on in the passage, the Israelites don't even have weapons. So by attacking this garrison, the Israelites knew that this was not a victory, but rather all they were doing was poking the bear. And the bear is waking up. Verse 5, the Philistines gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, and there's usually about two soldiers per chariot, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now that phrase should sound familiar, and that should perk our ears a little bit. Where have we heard that before? Verse 5 is an indictment that when God promised Abraham that he would have descendants 
that would inherit the land, he said that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And yet here, they're saying that this is not what's happening at all, whereas Israel is supposed to be the large army. It is their opposition that is the large army. And so, do you think Saul was regretting sending home 327,000 people yet? Probably. Because of Saul's pride, people's lives are at stake, and how do they deal with this threat coming down the road? Well, they take their cues from leadership. If you remember back in chapter 10, when Saul was announced as the king, and they say, well, where is Saul? We need to find him. Remember what he was doing? He was hiding in the supplies. And folks, when it comes to leadership, the people will always follow what the leaders do. So a threat comes to the people, and what do they do? They go and hide. Look in verse 6. They hide in caves and thickets among rocks and holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan of the land uh, to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, this is completely natural to do and totally understandable. You are in danger. You want to flee danger. But in doing so, they are displaying that they have already forgotten about God. They had forgotten the stories that they had heard. They had forgotten the story of Gideon, who was a man that had a large army with him, was knocked down to about 300, and he ended up winning against an army of 120,000. They had forgotten the stories that God had rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh and brought them into uh, the land after supplying them for 40 years. In their mind, though, God can't deliver them from the Philistines. So in running uh, to all these caves and, and thickets and rocks and holes and cisterns, they were not running from the Philistines. They were running from God. They were running from his promise to deliver them. And how often is it that when we face and find ourselves in situations where the pressure is on, we feel out of place, out of control, helpless, and yes, weak, that even subconsciously we believe God isn't able to rescue me from this. And so instead we, we run to escapisms. And escapism can, can be anything. We can numb ourselves with the, the endless scroll of looking through Facebook. We can uh, deal with our hurts and pains by binging on junk food. We can deal with our stress at work and stress that life brings by escaping into chemicals or pornography or other dis destructive behaviors. Whatever it is that distracts us from uh, trusting that God is with us, that he's for us, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper, that the battle belongs to him. It is in those times when we feel the most weak, the most helpless, that God has us right where he wants us to be. So we need to embrace our weakness. But on the other hand, we need to disown our strengths. And that's our second point today. We should disown our strengths. 
So the camera now, it, it pans away from these fearful people and it goes back over to Saul, who is now desperately trying to hold things together. Verse 7 tells us that the troops who are with them are gripped by fear. And if we go down to verse uh, 8, we find that uh, after seven days, a lot of his troops are going AWOL, deserting him. And why seven days? Because there was a common agreement between Saul and Samuel uh, in which Saul was to wait for seven days and then Samuel would come and offer up the sacrifice. We find this back in chapter 10, verse 8, when Samuel says, wait seven days until I come and show you what you are to do. So now, time is wasting as Saul is waiting for Samuel. Verse 8, he waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. This is not going well. Did something happen to Samuel? They need to get on the battlefield. So uh, by the afternoon, Saul can't take it anymore. He can't wait, and his actions here point to uh, what happens in our hearts when we become completely impatient with God in the midst of a crisis. God's not moving quick enough. Or God's not moving in the direction that we want him to move. And we think, just like Saul does, where he basically says, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it myself. I am going to get this done. Verse 9. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And then he burnt, he offered the burnt offering. So just like we often do when we take matters into our own hands, notice here that Saul uh, rationalized this grievous sin by making up excuses and offering blame. In his mind, the sacrifice had become a superstition that if we just did this sacrifice then everything's going to be right on the battlefield it's the exact same thing that the Israelites did when they uh, took the ark out onto the battlefield and the ark was uh, kidnapped by the Philistines so here Saul it doesn't matter to him who opened who offered up uh, the sacrifice he just thinks that God would be happy that someone took, for lack of a better term, the, the bull by the horns, and offered this sacrifice. Saul has deluded himself into believing that because he was king, the strength of his position would overlook the sin that he is in. And so he's overconfident, he's self-reliant, he is arrogant, and the text says that he is foolish. And you and I are his equals when we figure that our ingenuity, our intelligence, our skills, and our strengths are more effective than waiting on the Lord. Waiting for him to act. Well, the irony here is that as the offering is being cleaned up, who finally shows up? <laughs> Samuel. It's as if this whole thing is planned. I don't think it was. Well, obviously, God planned it, but it's great timing. 
And Saul acts if it's, if it's no big deal. He runs out to Samuel to greet him, basically saying, Samuel, where you been? You missed the barbecue, bro. This was great. We offered up the sacrifice. Now we're going to go out into the battle and we are going to win. And Samuel, however, does not react so enthusiastically. Notice what he says here in verse 11. What have you done? That's a terrifying question coming from a prophet. It is the same question that God asked Eve when she took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and handed it to Adam. It's the exact same question that God had asked her son Cain, what happened to Abel? What have you done? It's the same question that the angel of the Lord grilled Joshua on when he asked him if he had made a covenant with a foreign nation. And I want to suggest to you that if the Lord of heaven comes to you and says, what have you done? You might want to put a helmet on and you might want to just come forth with the truth. Saul follows the pattern of his forefather, Adam. He makes excuses and he, and he, and he, and he casts blame. Look at verse 11. Saul answered, uh, when I uh, saw the, that the troops were deserting me and, and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. <laughs> and, uh, and I love this. So I forced myself to offer up the burnt offering. Did you catch that? Samuel, the pressure was hot. And let's be honest, if you would have been here, none of this would have happened. We would just be fine. This isn't my fault. I had to do this. Because you were late, I went against my will and my conscience to do that which I thought needed to be done. I would love it if I could say that this is not a common pattern, but it's not. You and I are excuse factories. Think about the last time that you tried to cover something up, even if it was sneaking the last cookie out of the cookie jar. Did you take time to make up an excuse for it or pass blame? Or did it just come naturally to you? My guess is you had no problem justifying that. When, uh, when you did something displeasing, how quickly does it take for you to pass the blame on to somebody else? You probably don't even need to think about it because it is so natural to you. When we work out of our own strength, we are going to be faced with the temptation to compromise and if and when we do, we will immediately be faced with excuses and blame, further digging the hole that we have created for ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. And as painful as Samuel's response is, excuse me, as, as painful as, as Samuel's response is, I'm thankful for it. 
Because when you and I talk about sin, we often want to look at it with rose-colored glasses. As if it's really not a big deal. As if it was just a casual mistake or a careless error. But Samuel directs Saul to exactly what it is. Verse 13, he says that it's foolishness. He says, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. You know, biblical foolishness is not something that we talk about enough. The entire book of Proverbs, you could say, would be the paradigm of of comparing and contrasting foolishness to wisdom. Even our worldly understanding of foolishness is not how the Bible looks at it. I went to dictionary.com to get a definition of of foolishness uh, this week, and this is all it did was offer a bunch of adjectives. Someone who is foolish is someone who is stupid, witless, brainless, senseless, unintelligent, ridiculous, absurd, nonsensical, preposterous, imprudent, thoughtless, impetuous, rash, reckless, foolhardy. <laughs> they put half-baked, which I, I don't really know how that fits in there. But uh, heedless, incautious, trivial, and unimportant. Now, did you notice that every one of those words that I rattled off there are, uh, are cerebral? They, 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 they come from the mind. But biblically, foolishness is not just cerebral. It is moral. It is conscious rebellion and inattention to God's will and his desires. We like to think that uh, we get a pass when we look at Psalm 14, verse 1, in which it says that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. We look at that verse as if they're talking about Uh, an, an atheist. But it's not. When it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, it is rather pointing to those of us who live as if God doesn't exist. It is those of us who live as if he doesn't see. It's those of us who live as if we know better than God. It is for those of us that that believe that we are more crafty, that we are more witty, more powerful, and more crafty than, than than the Lord God himself. It is pointing at you, and it is pointing at me. Saul is a fool, and we are too when we choose to live in our own strength, when we choose to do it alone and go our own way. This self-reliance and rejection of God on the part of Saul is the beginning of the end for Saul. And it starts playing out almost like, like a movie that you know a sequel is coming, but the end of this prequel is just disastrous. Verse 15 Samuel's done with with Saul. He basically says, peace out, Boy Scout. I'm done with you. And he goes home. And you don't see him for uh, a couple more chapters. He lets the chips fall. Saul counts the troops that he has left and he counts 600. 
in verses 16 through 18, the, the, the text describes that the Philistines now are dividing into three camps, which means that they are not only trying to surround Saul, but also flank him. So this is not looking good. This is desperate. And now in verses 19 through 22, it gives us new detail into how desperate it is. No blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all the Israelites went back to the Philistines to sharpen their plows, mattocks, axes, and sickles. The, the price was two-thirds of a shekel for plows and mattocks, one-third of a shekel for pitchforks and axes and for putting a point on a cattle prod. And So on that day of battle, not a sword or a spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and Jonathan had weapons. So the Philistines, understand this, had economic and military control over the Israelites. They had a monopoly on the blacksmith uh, industry, which means that the Israelites can't fight with anything other than what they can just sort of make up. And we're left with a bleak picture in verse 23. Now a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. So whereas in the beginning of this chapter, the Israelites were thinking that they were something because they went and, and destroyed this garrison of the Philistines. And who is it now that's coming toward them? It's a garrison of the Philistines. Strong and proud Saul, he gained fame for taking out a garrison, and now that's what's going to get him. And that's how the chapter ends. And as we'll see next week, spoiler alert, uh, alert uh, by God's grace, Saul is going to survive this. But of all the things that we see going wrong in the direction for Saul, the most crushing is also the most heartening for us. Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have been foolish. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign in Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. So Samuel lays down the most distressing thing that he could have. Because of his sinful and selfish action, his kingdom will not endure. This is bad news. For Saul, that is. For us, however, it's a breath of fresh air. Because there is a king who is coming after Saul that will be nothing like Saul. The phrase, a man after God's own heart, is often uh, misunderstood and misused. A better way to look at that particular verse uh, would, would be that this is a man of God's own choosing. In other words, Samuel is telling Saul, which by the way, um, Saul means to ask, that Saul is the one that you have solved. You people, Saul is the one that you wanted. But there is one that is coming after him that is God's choice. And he 
is going to be different. And it's really important that we not stress this phrase too heavily on the character of David, who's going to show up here in a couple chapters. Yes, David would be the greatest king that Israel would see, but he was a very, very flawed man. What these weak Israelites and this proud king needed were the same thing that you and I, proud and weak and needy, need. A different kind of king. One who is not weak, but yet he's meek and mild. One that is not proud or self-reliant, but one who is selfless and a servant to all, completely dependent on God his Father. One who would flawlessly obey all the commandments of God his Father. So that in him, those who are proud and self-reliant can find forgiveness and peace with God. And those who are weak and needy can find the strength that they need. We need a king who calls us out of our cisterns and out of the, the caves and the thickets and the rocks and the holes that our fears bring us into. We need a king who calls us out of them and says, follow me, I got this. We need a king who tells us, you not only uh, can't do this on your own, but you don't have to do this on your own. It's cool because I can. I'm the one that can do it for you. Friends, in his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus has proven himself to be a better king than Saul. He has proven himself to be the greater David. In his ascension, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Jesus is, is the ruling king over the universe right now. And he invites us into his kingdom. Paul tells us that through King Jesus, through his person and work in Colossians 1, that he rescues us from the dominion of darkness and transfers us, where? Into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. You see, in, in Jesus' kingdom, there aren't any gyms. There aren't any weights to lift. There are no eggs to drink. Our strength comes from him and Jesus told the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And with that, Paul concludes, therefore, I will most gladly boast in my, uh, about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses and in insults and hardships and, and persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, 
disown your strength and embrace your weakness by taking on Christ Jesus, our Lord.